Welcome to the Hand Project Podcast, helping assist veterans every day, where we bridge the gap between the veteran community and the community at large. Thank you for tuning in. We hope you enjoy. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Sean McKinnon, and I have a special guest sitting here here today with me. So please introduce yourself, Mark. Hey, I'm Mark Allred, uh, Air Force retiree and Southwest retiree and uh, currently just enjoying life here in Oklahoma. All right, Mark. So let's get into uh, your background a little bit. I know uh, you're from Tulsa. Yes. And so you're homegrown, as we like to say here, right? In the Tulsa <laughs> yeah. area. Um, so go ahead and describe like your background a little bit of where you were raised and how you came to be a military officer and all that kind of stuff. Okay. I uh, am a family of four kids, uh, mom and dad and four kids. Uh, grew up in North Tulsa until I was in sixth grade. We moved out uh, into East Tulsa. Uh, my wife and I went to junior high school and high school together and got married about a year after high school. Uh, went to college part-time at night while we were working and then eventually ended up going back to Oklahoma State University full-time. I got a degree in computer science. She got one in uh, business and that got me into ROTC where I got a pilot slot and then eventually ended up in the Air Force uh, flying fighters. Uh, so... Um, Enjoyed the time, and we can talk some more about what it was like to go to pilot training and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> Sounds good. My son just graduated um, OSU in December. Oh, his good. bachelor's in aviation management. Oh, there you go. Why he's working out here at the base. So he's actually got two associates and a bachelor's now. Good. Thanks to the good. Air Force. Yeah, so, yeah. <laughs> so, um, okay, so let's see. You were at ROTC, right? Mm -hmm. And from there, what happened? Uh, I spent, I was in the two year program at, at ROTC at Oklahoma State, and I was the wing commander uh, the fall semester of my senior year. So I was the cadet kind of in charge of all the cadets. Uh, I got a pilot slot and I ended up going to Euro NATO Joint Jet Pilot Training, which was a new program at Shepard Air Force Base, Texas. Uh, fairly competitive to get into it. And uh, the, the deal was, you either graduated and got a fighter or you didn't graduate. Wow. So uh, 10, 10 check rides instead of six from the normal UPT base where we also did uh, check rides in four ship formation in the T-38 and uh, low level checks and some stuff that the other pilot training bases don't do. But I ended up graduating from that and got an F-4 and uh, went to Homestead Air Force Base, Florida for my F-4 training and followed that up uh, with survival training in Washington and, and ocean training out of Homestead. But then uh, very quickly ended up over in uh, Spangdalen, Germany uh, by Bitburg, Germany. Uh, I got over there in 1984 and was there till 87 flying F-4Es and F-4Gs, the wild weasel. Uh, so uh, a lot of good good times there and lots of uh, running around Europe. And on the weekends where I wasn't working, we probably spent uh, maybe a dozen weekends and three years at home. The rest of the time we were going to Belgium and Holland and uh, United Kingdom and uh, all over the place. Just, we just jump in the car and take off because uh, it's <laughs> – is cheap cheap place to travel and, and lots of good food and lots of good stuff. So um, we've got the whole house full of Hummels and Yadros and wall clocks and uh, cuckoo clocks and all that kind of stuff. Did you expect someone to have? They spent some time in Germany. <laughs> what was your favorite country to visit? Uh, we really loved Germany. Germany. The, okay. the food was great. Uh, we we would go to Spain in the summers and go down and sit on the beach, which was very nice and relaxing. But yeah, we, I even got to go to East Berlin before the wall came down and stuff. And that was a, a neat trip that they would do for military people uh, back, back in those days. All right. So that was in the late 80s. And now getting into like 1990, right? I, that's right when I joined in yeah. June of 1990. But where were you at around there? Yeah, in 80, January 87, I, we uh, transitioned to Seymour Johnson Air Force Base in North Carolina. And I went from there pretty immediately to the Fighter Weapons School in the F-4. Uh, did fairly well there. Got won all three of the trophies they gave out there, squad commander and wing, uh, wing ops officer, wing op operations officer came out for my graduation. And uh, so it was a pretty big deal, pretty good deal. And uh, uh, went back to Seymour Johnson after that, was the uh, weapons officer in the 336 uh, Rocketeers. 
uh, great squadron, great leadership there for that. Uh, and we were the first squadron out of out of Seymour that deployed to Desert Storm in uh, August of 1990. Okay. Uh, Saddam, I th- if I remember correctly, he moved on the uh, 5th or 6th of August. And about three days after that, we were loaded up in, in F-15Es and heading to, to, heading to Saudi Arabia. So we spent about five and a half months in Thumraid, Oman, once we got there, and then moved up to what is now called Prince Sultan Air Base. At the time, it was we called it Al-Kharj, just south of Dahran there, uh, or just south of Riyadh, I'm sorry. Uh, and during that time period, I got tapped to be one of the nine or ten people that planned the offensive ops that eventually turned into Desert Storm. I was the only Strike Eagle guy in the group. We had a lieutenant colonel out of uh, Langley that was the uh, F-15E guy, uh, two or three different F-16 guys, a couple of A-10 guys, an F-111 guy, uh, F-117 guy. So we had ad expertise from just about every airframe in that group. And then we had a group of probably six to nine intelligence folks that helped us with all that planning. The six to nine intelligence guys and uh, uh, Colonel Warden had put this plan together and brought it over to to brief to General Horner. Uh, And General Horner kind of kicked Colonel Warden back out of the country, but uh, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Dave Deptula stayed and briefed us on the plan. And General Glosson, who was the guy who actually called us all together, uh, had him brief us and then uh, basically stood up in front of the room and said, okay, you guys need to turn this into the first three days of what will become Desert Storm. Uh, And when you need a general to make something happen, come get me. And so the room, the the room, and the air campaign for the first three days was actually planned by nine or ten captains to lieutenant colonels, um, and so that was a pretty interesting place to be, uh, particularly when you compare that to Vietnam, where lots of targets were picked by uh, in, uh, civilians in the basement of the Pentagon. Uh, in this case, all of it was done by professionals right there in, in uh, the Riyadh headquarters. Uh, so we did that, and uh, what that what I would do is I'd, I'd, I'd go down to thumb rate and fly for four or five or eight or nine days, go up and plan for three or four days, and we'd just build the schedule where all of us could go down and fly for a week or so, come back up there and plan for three or four days, then go back down and fly. And then when the war kicked off, we all went home, and we were the leaders in all of our squadrons and wings because we knew the plan for the first three days. And so we, I flew uh, 42 missions in 38 nights uh, and actually took a couple nights off entirely just because you get so worn down from sometimes two or three missions a night. Uh, I, I took a couple nights off, uh, but ended up flying 42 combat missions, about 150 combat hours. Uh, during that 38 nights of the actual air campaign, uh, actually air campaign and ground campaign, the total thing was about 38, 38 nights total. Uh, I, I jokingly laughed because I saw the sun twice uh, when I was coming back to land because uh, most of our stuff would take off at uh, sometime between 1030 and midnight. And if you're flying two sorties, then you'd take back off about 2.30 or 3 in the morning and go back out and do it again. And most of the time you're back done, finished for the night by five or six in the morning before the sun came up and then go back and go back to your tent and try to figure out a way to get the sun all blocked off so you can get some sleep. So um, interesting time there. We came back from there in 91 um, in April or so of 91. And then I went fairly directly out to Nellis to start the F-15E division of the uh, Fighter Weapons School for F-15Es. I was one of the initial cadre instructors and actually of the seven of us that were brought out there to start that, I was the only one that had any combat time. Wow. The rest of them were guys who had been at Nellis or at Luke. various places around and um and so they were able to get a lot of the stuff done while i was in saudi as far as setting up the syllabus and that stuff and then when i got out there it was six months of writing academics and and getting all the i think we had a a 37 missions and 100 or 315 hours of academics 
built into that syllabus. Uh, and so I wrote maybe 75 hours of that academics. Wow. Most of the stuff that had anything to do with combat employment, I, I oversaw it or did it myself. So pretty interesting time out there. I spent three years there and then got selected to go to Marine Corps Command and Staff College. And I followed that up with uh, an assignment to the Pentagon, which was good and bad. The Pentagon's a terrible place to work, <laughs> but you learn more about the service in that two years I was there than I did the other 18 years I was in the service. <laughs> I was tied into an organization called Checkmate uh, that did uh, special ops planning for the chief of staff of the Air Force. And so I had my Marine, Army, Coast Guard, Navy components in the building that, if you remember right, uh, in 91 in August and 92 in April and August, Saddam would drag the Republican Guard back out and act like he's going to go back to Kuwait again. Mm -hmm. Every time he would do something like that, we'd all get together, talk about what everybody had in theater, how quick we could, we could react to it and what we could do about it. And then we'd each go up and brief our chief of staffs of the component the, the, the services. And so I got to know uh, the chief of staff of the Air Force fairly well in that two years because there were times that it was just he and I in his office talking about what Air Force assets we had in theater and what we could do with them if we had to. And so a very interesting job there. And uh, I, I got to do a lot of really neat stuff in that office. And like I said, because I was tied into all the other services, I got to know tons about how the Marines operated, how the Army operated all that kind of stuff, you know, all amazing. the special capabilities that each of them had. Uh, it was very, very uh, educational opportunity to figure out how all the other services thought. Uh, so after about two years of that, there was an incident that happened out at Nellis and a squadron commander and ops officer both got removed from their job. Uh, and I got a phone call about three weeks later asking me if I would come out and interview for the squadron commander's position that had just been vacated. And what year was that about? That would have been 95. 95, okay. So I... Uh, 95, 96, probably 96, I'm sorry. Okay. Uh, so I ended up going out there in uh, February of 96 and assumed command of a squadron. Didn't, didn't do a change of command, did an assumption command because the previous guy had been removed. Uh, and so I, I did that in February and then I had to go back to the Pentagon had to go to squadron commander's school and then back down to Seymour to get requalified in the airplane. And so for about five months, I was a squadron commander of a squadron in Las Vegas, Nevada, while I was on the East Coast, running up and down the East Coast, going to conferences and, and getting requalified in the airplane, which I asked. My, kind of busy. I asked my boss out there. I said, OK, what happens if something happens and I'm not here in my squadron to defend myself as to what happened. He goes, I don't worry about it. Well, I'll, I'll take care of that while you're doing what you're doing. So fairly rare. Uh, I was the squadron commander of an F-15E squadron as a major for about nine months until I pinned on my lieutenant colonel bars. Uh, and then I got to be the squadron commander for about two and a half years, which is oh, seven or eight months longer than most guys get to. After that, uh, the, the uh, commandant of the weapons school decided to promote me to the deputy commandant of the weapons school, and I stayed there for another two and a half years. Uh, and I basically oversaw all of the academic programs for all 11 divisions of the weapons school. We started a $10 million contract having civilians help us with those academics. So they'd, they'd draw all the ribbon diagrams and stuff that were in the books that, that made all the pictures to make the words make sense. And so I reviewed every, every piece of academics that got taught in the weapons school while the uh, contractors were getting themselves up to speed. And it, was, it wasn't bad because all of those guys were uh, retired weapons school graduates. And so they knew what they were getting into to start with. And it was just a matter of, uh, you know, I'd, I'd walk in and on my desk every morning, there'd be 15 academic books that I'd have to get through those today or something to get them back and, and give them the comments they needed to fix them. 
uh, and then get them back out to the instructors where I'm going to teach them in the next week or so. So <laughs> it was a busy time, but I still got to fly a couple times a week while I was doing that, uh, flying a Strike Eagle still. And so I maintained all of my instructor currencies and could fly virtually any mission the, the squadron wanted me to fly if they needed an instructor to go out and do it. So it was a good time. And then uh, I was coming up on my 06 board, primary 06 board, uh, looking at options for what I could do out of there and uh, actually ended up retiring and going to work for Southwest Airlines. Had a, a bunch of friends that had retired and gone there before me. Uh, and every one of them that I called and I was asking questions about what I should do, every one of them said, retire and come to Southwest. Wow. So I did that and uh, flew for Southwest for 19 years, about four years out of uh, Phoenix. And then uh, the remaining 15 or so out of Dallas and Houston once we moved back to Tulsa. How did you find the uh, the transition to be? from military to civilian sector uh you know it's 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 a different ball game because you know in the military there is no union there is no any of that kind of stuff and as a pilot for a major airline like that that's all it is you you don't do anything unless the union says it's okay to do it uh, and that's i mean they coordinate everything with the company right. so the company provides the text that says Here's how you fly the airplane and you just get, you have to know all that stuff. But when it comes down to making decisions, once you get in the airplane, you do whatever the, whatever the book tells you to, that's been coordinated between the union and the, and the company uh, so that you don't put yourself at liability for making decisions that are outside the realm of what they want you to do. They still want you to act like a captain make decisions and then do the right things. And, and in particular, you know, the, probably one of the biggest differences for me, although I'm the kind of person that it, it, it felt logical, but you, you spend a lot more time worried about customer service and customer satisfaction where in the military, you know, if I needed something done, I would order Joe to go do it. Uh, and, and it would get done in the time frame that I gave him to do it uh, or, or consequences were, were there for not doing that. Uh, but there were lots of times with, I mean, I, I can remember one, one flight in particular where we ended up having to divert into Palm Beach, Florida from Orlando. And I had eight kids on the airplane, unaccompanied kids on the airplane. I don't remember it was Thanksgiving or something. But we landed in Palm Beach and I ran off the airplane and went and bought eight Happy Meals at Burger King just to try to keep these kids happy, you know, knowing that their parents were in Orlando waiting for us to land in Orlando. Uh, and so, you know, you do things wow. like that to try to keep them satisfied and keep their parents happy and that kind of stuff. And um that was that was the big difference. You know, flying is flying, although I never compared 600 knots and upside down in a strike eagle to 300 knots and right side up in a 737. And you probably didn't buy a lot of Happy Meals for the soldiers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now, I, now, now, I will tell you that there are a number of Thanksgivings that I went and served meals to the enlisted guys. That's cool. Uh, when I was at Nellis and various other places. That's um, cool. <laughs> And on a, on a weird story about that, too, uh, if I go back to Desert Storm for just a minute, sure. I came home. I came back to the States uh, is around Thanksgiving to actually plan for the extraction of the American people out of the Kuwait City Embassy. Hmm. And so I spent a couple of weeks in North Carolina and at Fort Bragg doing practice missions with them flying helicopters in behind me after I dropped weapons and doing some things like that. Well, we got all that done and got everything orchestrated to go back to the desert and and, uh, and to see if we were going to complete the mission over there. And we deployed into Germany. And the guy that went with me, we both left Saudi with no one knowing we were leaving. It was all top secret to go back and plan this mission. And so on the way back, we stopped in Germany and spent a day or two there to get reacclimated to the time and, and to get the airplanes ready to go back into Saudi. And the night before he left, I said, I looked at him and said, give me a hundred bucks. So he gave me a hundred bucks. I took a hundred bucks. We went to the pizza pizza parlor at the end of the runway at Ramstein Air Force Base. I said, how many pizzas will you give us for 200 bucks? And the guy gave us like 25 extra large pizzas. <laughs> 
And so we picked those things up and we stuffed the travel pods full of full of pizzas and stuff and actually had all but about five of them would fit in the travel pod. And those five sit on the canopy rail between he and I in the cockpit. And we flew back into Saudi uh, Christmas Eve. And so as we were flying back in, I got on the radio and called the uh, the ops group commander and said, hey, I need you to meet me at my airplane with your truck. And so he did, the colonel, and he goes, what's going on? And he said, well, I got... I got the the pizza for the party tonight, <laughs> and he was just flabbergasted, you know. So, Christmas Eve, we've been over there since August, and not had a piece of pizza since August because nobody over there knows what pizza is. <laughs> and so, Christmas Eve, we had a big pizza party for the squadron guys, and then we walked around the eight thousand man tent city singing Chris, Chris, uh, Christmas songs. <laughs> Everybody had their little Christmas hat on and all that kind of stuff, and. So it's kind of a kind of a fun way to get back into the squadron and stuff. That's and, pretty funny. Yeah, <laughs> being from Buffalo, you know, there's a little bit of pizza where I'm from. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that would have made my day. When I <laughs> so it's funny, interesting, and a fun way to get get reacclimated back into the squadron. <laughs> um, so, talk a little bit about backing up to uh, going in first strike or whatever in desert storm and let's talk a little bit about that the aircrafts and some of the stuff you went through yeah uh like i said I, I did all the planning for the first three days and a lot of that was just kind of horse jockeying i call it between you know the f-111s uh with their paved tax system it it's got some limitations to it where when you're looking for scuds like we wanted to do out there in western iraq the pave tack system didn't work as well as the lantern system did because the lantern, it'll kind of look back underneath itself. The, the, the head on it rotates to where you can see almost 360 degrees around you. So what we did would run a, a U-shaped formation across the roads and the guy in the back seat could just look up and down the road instead of going down the road at 600 miles an hour trying to see something while the pave tack pod was looking down that same road you could go back and forth and still have your airspeed where you want it but the pod is only moving at you know a few feet per minute or whatever and so they're able to look underneath bridges for these trucks these scud trucks and stuff and so we we did more of that than i wanted to with the strike eagle but probably just because we were the most qualified to do it at night the other part of that, too, is the F-111s would carry more bombs and stuff than we did on the Strike Eagle. <coughs> so if I had targets that needed a lot of bombs dropped on it, I'd, I'd get the F-111s to go do that. Uh, not that we were short. Uh, I mean, we, we could still carry 12,000-pound weapons uh, or seven 2,000-pound weapons, but those the F-111 can carry like 34,000 pounds of weapons on it. So... There was a trade-off for that kind of stuff. And, of course, during the day, we didn't want to be out there in the day at all because the airplane's painted dark and it shows up against the sunlight. And so a lot of the A-10s that were painted gray did a lot of that same kind of work during the day uh, because they could see better. And, and of course, they've got that great big 30-millimeter cannon in front of them that uh, just destroys anything it hits. So uh, there's a lot of jockeying around with that. So the, the first night, uh, I ended up leading the first airplanes across the border into Saudi that weren't stealth airplanes. There were 12 or 15 stealth airplanes that went up by Baghdad about five minutes before we got up there to try to turn off the electricity and do some of that kind of stuff. And then our primary targets, we had one six ship going after an airfield to try to keep the airfield from being operational. And the other... 16 airplanes in my flights were all all pretty much going after uh, scud sites that had been surveyed to launch into israel so we we dropped canistered munitions uh like like my airplane i dropped rock eye which is a little it's a canister that drops out 200 little bomblets and those 200 bomblets cover a couple of football fields uh, and and kind of make it impossible to use that that space for a while. And of course, if they hit anything that's there, then it blows up whatever it hits. Um, and so, you know, we we had surveyed all this stuff, and the target that I went across the first night had 
133 gun emplacements around it, uh, and a couple of SA2 and SA3 sites fairly close. So we got up there at 3 o'clock, 3.05 in the morning. <coughs> was our TOT. Uh, I went across the target uh, in the dark with nobody shooting at that moment in time, but about the time my bombs hit the ground. If you can remember those pictures you might have seen on the TV with all the tracers flying through the air and stuff, that's what it looked like 30 wow. seconds after my bombs hit the ground. Wow, geez. It was light enough from all the tracers and missiles being shot at us that I rolled up to 80, 85 degrees bank, pulled six Gs off the target, looking at the desert floor. It was lit up enough that I could see the ground uh, without having any lights or anything out there. And so my three ship went across that target. We turned around, came back out. The other airplanes were all dispersed against six other targets. It's amazing to think how much light those things throw. I mean, just, just I to had, see all uh, that. Yeah. We had two SA-3s and an SA-2 fly over the top of our airplane, but we were at 100 feet or so when that all happened. So the, the, the probability of them hitting you is not very, very high, but it, it gets your attention when uh, a missile the size of a telephone pole was flying over the top of your airplane. <laughs> yeah, I'd uh, say so. I'd yeah. say so. <laughs> so we did all that and uh, uh, headed back out. We're, we're all heading back out of the country. Everybody got to their targets, had turned around south, headed back to Saudi. And we ended up with a MiG-29 and a MiG-23 that had taken off out of some of the southern air bases that were kind of coming up toward us at, oh, roughly 4,000 feet above the ground. And so we're, we're kind of keeping track of them, but we don't really have a lot on our airplane to shoot at them with. Uh, and the, the heat-seeking missiles are the only thing we have on our airplanes. And they're only on certain airplanes because, you know, those missiles needed to be on the air-to-air -air guys' airplanes, not ours. Uh, and so there's a couple of missiles fired each direction from some of our guys toward the MiGs. And then a couple fired from the MiGs at some of our guys. None of them guided, none of them hit anything. Uh, they all just kind of dove into the desert out there. But as, as the MiG-29 is passing my airplane and my three ship uh, and gets to about the four o'clock position, I just happened to turn and look that direction <coughs> and catch something hitting the MiG-29, blowing the wing of it off and the airplane spinning and hitting the ground and blowing up again once it hit the ground. And then about 45 seconds later, the MiG-23 hit the ground, and I don't know what caused that. Mm -hmm. At least I didn't at the time. Right. We ended up, that was, those were the only two airplanes in our formation that night. We got back out, and uh, although we had a couple guys that were running short on fuel, we got everybody to the tanker and everybody backed out cars. Uh, and one of the neatest things ever in your life, when we got back to our cars and we're parking the airplanes, we're taxing on the ramp to get back to our parking spots. And there's probably 3,000 people standing out there waving flags and cheering. Wow. And uh, I mean, just enough to make you start crying almost on how, how patriotic everybody was. And these were not the guys who were waiting to catch our airplanes. These were the people that should have been in their tents sleeping. Wow. You know, now it's five in the morning or whatever, and they're all up waiting for all, all 22 of us to get back mm -hmm. uh, to make sure that everybody made it home and all that kind of stuff. So a pretty, pretty intense moment. Uh, and so that was, that was a real cool thing to see that everybody felt like they had the same piece of, of their life involved in this, in this mission and how it went. So after that, uh, it turned into fairly quickly into a, Every night routine, you know, getting up at 7 or 8 p.m., eating, getting dressed, going in, briefing from 10 to midnight or so, taking off at 1 or 2 in the morning and flying anywhere from two to six-hour missions uh, and maybe a couple of them a night, you know, maybe one a night. Like I said, I took a couple nights off entirely where I just went, I need a break for a, a night and let somebody else fly and and so that routine kind of kind of gets into a routine fairly quickly. Uh, for a lot of us, we went out to Western Iraq quite a bit to stop the activity into into uh, Israel. Uh, and then, oh, probably eight or ten nights into the program is when they started that uh, 
Kuwait theater of ops stuff where we were going in and killing tanks and, and doing the stuff that we did out there. And that, that was kind of a new level of intensity because there were a lot of Republican guard guys out there and a lot of things, a lot of missiles, a lot of gun emplacements and stuff. So you'd kind of gotten into this routine out in Western Iraq where not much was going to shoot at you. And if it did, it's probably way below you. And so you, you can, you kind of go, well, I'm comfortable. I'm still getting shot at, but I'm halfway comfortable. And then now we get over toward Kuwait and you're having to get down into these boxes to actually kill these tanks. And all of a sudden you've got missiles flying by the airplane again and, wow. and bullets coming up to your, your altitude and those kind of things. So there's a couple of cycles like that, that you just go, wow, we're, we're really back in combat again. Mm-hmm. Uh, <clears throat> so you do maybe four or five nights in that Kuwait theater of operations, then go back out to the West for a couple of nights, then go back in there for four or five nights. Uh, I was also involved in the, um, the highway of death mm-hmm. north out of, uh, out of Kuwait city there. Yeah. We put 12 strike eagles up and down that highway, dropping some clustered munitions that, uh, <coughs> really did some, really did some bad stuff. Uh, I mean, good, good stuff as far as we're concerned, but, uh, right. Uh, it really tore up some stuff. I mean, I, I, um, after the war was over, and I know I'm skipping ahead a little bit, but after the war was over, I got the opportunity to fly General Glosson, him in the front seat, me in the back seat. And we took off out of our cars, went up where they, over Kuwait City, and then over where they signed the peace accord, and then flew basically almost up to Baghdad, and then went back and refueled and then took went back to Al Kars and landed. And that was kind of his, the, the Air Component Commander's opportunity to go see what all we had done. Wow. Uh, one interesting story on that, we're kind of flying up the Euphrates River toward Baghdad, and there's a town out there about 40 miles in front of us, and I, I keyed the mic and told General Gloss and said, hey, come to your right a little bit. Don't fly, don't fly over that town that's about 40 miles in front of us because I just dropped bombs on it last night, and it was shooting at me. So I don't know that they have the word that we've stopped and I don't want to get shot down after the war's over with. Uh, <laughs> Not a good idea. <laughs> and so he kept driving and kept driving and eventually got within about, oh, 15 miles of the town. I said, hey, I told you you need to come to the right and he still didn't do it. So I just, I grabbed the airplane away from him and pulled around to the right and flew around this town. So he got the airplane back, um, <laughs> which I was surprised I never heard any more about it, you know, for a captain to do that to a general <laughs> officer. It's like, uh, and, and I told him, Hey, I told you I'm not going to get shot down the night after the war ends. So it's actually uh, smart thinking, right? Yeah. <laughs> so we we had a good time, and he was he was a good guy, I and mean, I had spent lots of time with him, so he he knew me fairly well and knew to knew to trust me. So that was all good. <laughs> now, were you able to talk to anybody back in America, back in the states during any of this time, satcoms? Or yeah, we uh, once we got up to uh, Alcars. Which, like I said, was Prince Sultan Air Base now. Uh, it, it had that 8,000-person tent city. They actually set up a little uh, base exchange, and we had a, oh. a child a child tent and some of that kind of stuff. Oh. Yeah. You know, for the first first two months, we were in Thumbraid, Oman. We ate nothing but MREs, mm-hmm. and the only way to warm them up was to stick them on the hood of a Humvee and let the sun <laughs> heat them up some. Uh, until we finally worked out a deal with the Omanis to to be able to buy some food in their in their O Club, but that took a couple months before they even agreed to do that. Wow. But up up in uh, Alcars, we actually had a, uh, a a chow tent. I mean, they'd run eight thousand people through it, three meals a day or whatever. So it was a pretty big operation. They have a communication um, center there. And so when they set up that base mm-hmm. exchange stuff, they set up a call center. Yeah. And so I think it was, I want to say it was like once a week or once every two weeks, you could go you'd go call home for five minutes or something. There, there were restrictions on what you could do, uh, but at least you got an opportunity to say hi and let, let, let your wife know you're still alive, you know, so. And this is for the listeners out there. We have some young listeners, we have some older listeners, but a lot of the younger guys, you know, they hear us talking about pre-cell phone days. And this is before there was like 
internets and before we had cell phones and be able to you know whatever to your loved ones you know now that guys do and yeah even even way before that (laughs) yeah nobody nobody carried a cell phone with them to saudi when we went over there yeah we didn't own them Uh, did you have the little cameras in central america we had the little cameras stuffed in our gear i have some photos of missions in honduras they were the throwaway cameras you know oh yeah we did i think i think some guys had had those of their own but there nothing was nothing was issued they get wrecked in the jungle (laughs) the jungle but we had those back but I, i tell people too when i was a squad commander uh in 96 or 97 whatever it was mm-hmm. i i might have had a flip phone for a while but i you know with the big bricks that we carried around <laughs> right. the big big honking radios that were half the size of your arm that's what i had to carry around all day to keep track of what was going on in my squadron they look like a jump box now. it's like you know nowadays you pull out your iphone and go oh, yeah i got five guys airborne and three guys waiting to take off and you know it's it's so yeah, I got, we have a, a through missionaries we have a girl in africa who was calling me on facebook the other day i was at work at lunch she's in africa it's kind of funny compared to what you and i were used to growing up right yeah it's crazy <laughs> it's i mean crazy. i wish i would have had that that capability when i was a commander right <laughs> uh, just just to be able to keep guys out of trouble and whatever but uh, so now um as you progress through the military what's one of the biggest things you think you learned out of being in the military uh i, I mean i i don't i don't think you can you can negate the the discipline that's involved I mean, it's unlike anywhere else in the world. And I don't mean that in a bad way. It's not like everybody's screaming at everybody all the time to, to make them do stuff. It's just that I could call you into my office when I was a commander and go, you know, Sean, I need to get this done. I need this done in three days. And I'd get a yes, sir, I'll get it done. How, how do you need it done or whatever? Mm-hmm. And and the, you know, one of the interesting things for me when I got to that command position was going, I don't need to tell guys how to do stuff. I just need to tell them, this is what I need done. And you you, you learn real quickly that there's a thousand ways to, to skin a cat, so to speak. And so if you'll leave people to their own devices and then just, just go, hey, I need this done in a week. Come in in three days and tell me where you're at. And so they'd come in and go, okay, here's what I'm, here's what I got done, and here's what I, my research has shown me, and whatever. And then I can interject with, hey, have you thought about this, or have you have thought about that? Have you looked into this? And get them, make sure they're pointed the right direction, but then leave them alone, you know. And and that to me, that's what I call discipline, where you have guys, you guys and gals, you could trust to go. Here's what I need done. Go go get it done. If they and, had an issue, they could come back to you. Yeah. Sure, and, right? you know, normally yeah. in good days, I'd be able to go, I, I, I've got five days for you to do this because on day seven, I've got to go brief it to my boss. And so I need a couple of days to make sure that we're that we're fully up to speed. Uh, and, and on bad days, I go, hey, Sean, I need this tomorrow. Sorry. But that means you're going to be here all night. So, you know, and, and nobody would complain. All right. You know, okay, yes, sir. I'll get it done. Now, that... That depended a lot on me as a commander as well. Right. You know, I, the relationship I had with the folks that worked for me that knew I was also willing to stay there all night and do it if I had to and, and those kind of things. So you led by example. And, and who also knew that I was protecting them much more than I was trying to protect myself. Uh, that That's the kind of discipline stuff that I talk about and think about with my career in the military. Uh, you know, it's different when I went to Southwest. There's a different level of discipline. You tell a guy, hey, we need to do this. And he might go, yeah, I don't think so. You know, I, I don't agree with that. Or let me go look and see what the book says. Or, yeah, I'm going to go get a coffee. I'll be back in 30 minutes. You know, I don't care. <laughs> and not that, not, that, right. not that they're completely undisciplined, but it's just right. different. It's style. just a different style of getting things done. And I, I when I was a captain uh, in a major airline, Anytime I had an issue that I had to deal with, I tried to bring my first officer into it. Hey, here's what I'm thinking. Here's what I here's what I think we need to do. You got any ideas? You got any thoughts about this? And you know, if they turn around, and went, yeah, I've never dealt with this before. And I go, okay, here's what we're going to do. Here's here's why I'm doing what I'm doing, just so you'll know, <laughs> in case somebody comes back and asks you, hey, why did you let Mark do this? Then he'd go, well, here's what Mark told me. <laughs> You know, and, and Mark's the captain, so go talk to him. 
so you know that level was was just different. Uh, not that either was good or either was bad, but uh, but I enjoyed that aspect of the military. Going, I knew my guys would do whatever I asked them to do, and they knew that I would protect them with my life if I needed to. Yeah, that's an interesting thing with being veterans and stuff now. Um, you, if you ever heard any of my podcasts before, hear me speak and stuff, publicly speaking, I'll say, um, I have this phrase that veterans help veterans better than anybody else. Yeah. And be and it's that empathy and not sympathy. And it, that carries out out of the military, then into the veteran community. Now, as veterans, we can take that into other areas, whether right. we're in the community, whether I'm in sales or you're helping with um, the pregnancy center and all that stuff and yeah. churches. And so I think um, the, the military example of leading by example was being like airborne infantry. I told you prior to our interview that um, Staff Sergeant Wallace at the time was my was my squad leader and uh, yeah. he was a Ranger RA and man, there's nothing that guy wouldn't ask me to do that he wouldn't do, mm-hmm. nothing. And so when he asked you to do something, you went and did it. Yeah. You figured out how to get it done. Cause, Cause, Cause you know, he's done it before you. <laughs> and now, like I said, he's the Sergeant at arms. He was for the BVA <laughs> Blind Veterans Association. But you know, these things that they're instilled into us through the military uh, apply into our everyday lives. Mm-hmm. You know, as we carry on, and that's something with this podcast I like to emphasize is us veterans are out there. A lot of us are out there, okay. And there's a lot of our brothers and sisters hurting, and they have oh, visible yeah. wounds, and they have physical wounds, and missing limbs, and all that kind of stuff. But then there's a lot of us that God bless. We've um, come out through the other side, and we're in our community interacting. And I'd like to say a lot of us are leading by example still. Yeah, you bet. And I've done my homework on you a little bit. And so <laughs> so your, the recommendations came in for those of you out there listening that Mark's uh, leading by example everywhere he goes around here. So I'd like to take a minute and have you share for, with us like where you're at now in your life. Okay. I know we're in Owasso, obviously, yeah. physically, but what's well, going and, I, on? and I will say one thing before we get off that, mm-hmm. you know, two of the core values for the Air Force was mm-hmm. excellence in all we do and service before self. There you go. And those two still run my life. Uh, I, you know, I, 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 I'm the chairman of the board of the Pregnancy Resource Center of Owasa, Mm -hmm. where we help young people with unexpected pregnancies by giving them pregnancy tests and testing them for sexually transmitted diseases. And we even have an ultrasound machine where we can show them what their baby looks like if if the timing is correct and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. But, but we do that too, because we we're actually in the business of trying to save lives. You know, it's part of the process is, is we don't, we don't actively go stand on Planned Parenthood's porch and protest, but we just wait for people to come to us. And, and if they think they're abortion minded, then we try to have a, a decent conversation with them. Now, one of my guidelines to the, to the women that work down there is that, you know, you don't, you don't hit them over the head with the Bible first. Right. You treat them like humans first. Mm-hmm. You talk to them. You find out what's going on in their life and how how we can help them with their situation. And eventually, over four or five or six visits, maybe you can offer to pray with them. Uh, and, you know, we, we've even got our program set up where once they're into the program and they've kind of figured out that we're the good guys, then they can earn points by remembering Bible verses or That's going cool. to a Bible study or or they, they earn points just for going to work. Hmm. And so we've got a boutique down there with uh, uh, baby clothes in it and diapers and wipes and food and stuff like this that gets donated to us. And so these points, I think, I think for one point, they can get 10 diapers and a package of wipes. Hmm. For 10 points, they can get a a stroller for 25 points they can get a car seat so by the time they go through our their nine month program with us they can graduate before their baby's born and have a car seat for the car and a, and a bassinet and a stroller and uh, we give we give them 10 pieces of clothes for a point hmm. so they can get 10 outfits for their baby and they don't have to be the same size. They can get two for six months and two for two years and, and whatever. So by the time they're done, they can come out and go, I've got most of what I need to help take care of this baby. And we do all that through donations. I mean, we don't. We almost don't spend any of our own money 
uh, uh, the organization's money to buy diapers and wipes and stuff. When if we run low, we put a thing out on Facebook and go, hey, folks, we're running low on size two diapers. Anybody want to help? And, you know, we'll end up with a truckload of them at the front door, you know, two days later. That's awesome. From people that want to come by and help. We've got tremendous numbers of volunteers that come in there, and we, and we do a a mentoring program. We call it Earn While You Learn, where we attach one of these 17, 18, 20, 25-year-old girls or whatever to a lady who is a volunteer force that might be anywhere from 25 herself to 60. Wow. And we attach them together for that whole term of their pregnancy. They'll go through academic blocks and talk about various things. If if the young girl was a smoker, we try to give her some smoking cessation academics and explain to them how bad smoking is for the baby and, and those kind of things. If they're if they're drinkers or do drugs, we, we do all that kind of stuff and help them with that. We have counselors that can help them with counseling needs if they're from an abused family or something like that, we can help them out with those kind of those kind of things. And the interesting thing about the pandemic is we've been forced to start doing a lot of this stuff electronically. Oh, wow. So <laughs> we, we have mentors that get together with clients and do an academic session over Zoom. She still earns the points for going through all that. She still builds a relationship with somebody, but we just don't want to subject our 60-year-old volunteers wow. <laughs> to someone that's more active in life and could be could be exposed to COVID that doesn't affect them, but might affect our, our 60-year-old volunteer. About four years ago, I, I, uh, I brought up the idea and we started a program for the men. So if, if the girl comes in, we try to find out who her partner was, if they're an unmarried couple or whatever. And then we'll attach that guy with someone like me who goes to the same program that the girl does. And a lot of that is it's geared toward the men so that we can try to explain what happens to girls' hormones while they're pregnant. So that if they're living together or married or whatever and go, hey, this is kind of some of the stuff that's going to happen. You know, she's going to act not like herself at certain points in time. <laughs> and here's what you need to do to cope with that. And we also are able to to give them academics on things like shaken baby syndrome and, you know, give them counseling on what they need to do. If, if you just get flustered, you know, put the baby down in the crib and walk away. The baby's not going to get hurt if she's laying down. But if you grab hold of her and start shaking her, then she's going to get hurt permanently. So it, it, it's a neat program in, that, in those ways. It, it, it actually got started out of First Church here in Owasa. It's just a little broom closet in our old building. Wow. And now it's grown 27, 28 years later. It's its own freestanding 501c3. So it's been around that long? Yeah. Wow. That yeah. was one of my questions. Now, we're sitting in First Church, Owasa right now. They were generous enough to yeah. let us use one of their rooms today for this interview. But um, so it's been around that long. And now yeah. you've been chairman how long? Uh, I think I've been on the board for about 10 or 11 years, 10 or 12 years. And I think this is my third term as the chairman. Uh, we've got a great board. Uh, we've got one one guy that's a minister, one guy that's an accountant. We had a lawyer on the board until a few months ago when she became a judge. And now she can't be on the board <laughs> anymore be, yeah. because it's a conflict of interest. Uh, we've got a real estate lady, a lady that runs her own business, uh, a, a guy who's a manager at Chick-fil-A. I mean, just a great, great group of people with various experiences that have come together to be on this board. Uh, and, and we're always looking for board, for board members, people with, uh, like I said, we lost a lawyer a few months ago. I'd love to find another person that has the right heart to be on the board that's also a lawyer. Right. So we we continuously look for that stuff uh, and continuously look to grow our influence. Uh, and the biggest issue for us probably is that we don't do a lot of advertising. We've got a Facebook page and and some of that kind of stuff, but we don't have the funds to put up a billboard and let people know we're here. So 90% of the people that come to us come from word of mouth. Wow. Uh, and of course, the pandemic has slowed that down a little bit because a lot of these kids aren't going to high school, you know, in in person. Uh, but they're still having their other activities. Uh, so they st there's still a need. But in the before the pandemic stuff started, 
you'd have a girl come in and tell four or five of her friends, hey, I think I might be pregnant. And one of them would go, hey, let's go to the Pregnancy Resource Center just because she knew about it from some experience from a cousin or, or whatever. And now a lot of that is is not there because the kids are doing online learning or whatever. So we found our numbers going down some. We don't think it's because there's less activity, but it's just because people don't know that we're there. So we're, we're, we're tied into probably 20 of the local churches in Owasa. Okay. Uh, and we reach out to Kansas, to Arkansas. To, we don't go much into Tulsa because there's other, there's three or maybe four other places in Tulsa that do relatively the same thing we do. Uh, but we do go clear out to Bartlesville and toward mm-hmm. Ponca City, and uh, so we're we're kind of the green country, <laughs> you know, uh, uh, piece of this of this product. Now there is a small center in prior Oklahoma and another small one in Inola, Oklahoma. Okay. So they pick up some of that stuff as well. But, uh, but we're, I mean, we'll see anybody that wants to come see us, but, uh, um, so where's it located? It's an 8631 G Owasa expressway. So it's right next to the shiver, just South of the Chevrolet dealer on the East side of highway 169. Uh, in a little strip shopping center back in that we own the back corner of the little st- strip shopping center. Uh, so it, it's, it's easily available, uh, easy to get to. And, uh, like I said, if anybody knows somebody that needs help with that, get on Facebook and look for pregnancy, pregnancy resource center, Wawasa, and we can get you to the right place. Do we have links on our church page? Do you know? Uh, Maybe first church. I don't know. I'll have to I'll find have out. To, I'll have to look. Um, <laughs> I know. Not, hey, Pastor. <laughs> I know the church did a. Uh, we normally do a baby bottle drive for mm-hmm. Sanctity of Human Life Sunday, which was a couple of weeks ago. Uh, but with the pandemic, we don't want to be passing baby bottles around and having right. to handle all that change and stuff. So, at least first church, first church here did a dollar drive, what they call a dollar drive, mm-hmm. <clears throat> where they ask people to give one dollar bills, and uh, you know it's phenomenal. They they raised something like thirty eight hundred dollars on one Sunday. Mm-hmm. That will help us with the cost. Uh, the other issue we had last year, we couldn't do a banquet like we normally do in the fall. Right. And we normally raise seventy or $80,000 at that banquet. So we've been, we've been hitting the, hitting the doors and the, and the businesses to try to, the folks that would normally come to that banquet, we hit them up and go, Hey, we're still here. We're still operating. Do you still want to partner with us? I'll put some links in the uh, podcast show. I'll get with Mark here, listeners, and uh, be sure to look in on the notes, uh, whether you're tuning in through the uh, Spotify app or through the Apple podcast or Podbean, whatever. Um, I'll make sure that the notes are in there and you just let me know, Mark, what you want me to put in there and we'll get it in there. If anybody has any questions or like Mark said, if you know somebody in need, a neighbor or cousin, uh, somebody at church, at work, whatever, feel free to reach us to at the Have Project and um, I can move the message on or reach out to Mark. So that'll all be in the notes. Yeah, cool. And uh, I love the fact that um, us veterans are involved in so much in the community. Yeah. Um, the Have Project was started with uh, giving out medical equipment for free to veterans and their family back in Buffalo. And uh, the pandemic kind of kicked that around because I wasn't able to reach the vulnerable population with the equipment with the New York stipulations and so forth mm-hmm. with the pandemic. So now we're out here in Owasso and uh, we've, we've uh, been doing some stuff out here now and uh, helping out veterans locally around here. So um, those of you who've been following the Have Project for the last few years, we appreciate the continued support and also look forward to some new changes going on because we're not really doing medical equipment so much, but we're doing food drives with the Coffee Bunker, mm-hmm. 41st in Sheridan, been reaching, helping those guys already. Um, we're doing some uh, giveaway stuff, working with companies in Buffalo. I, um, had a company buy a snowblower down here where I work in Tulsa, New Holland, because we didn't need it here. And <laughs> they bought it and it's being shipped to Buffalo as we speak. And that'll be going out to a veteran in, in Buffalo. Oh, so, cool. Yeah. So that'll be on Facebook. So I'm, I'm, I'm reaching some other areas here and, and forging new partnerships here. Yeah. Uh, in the Owasso area. So feel free to uh, check out the uh, Half Project page. I'll be putting some more stuff on there and updating it regularly. And uh, I'm sure now, Mark, do you have uh, anything out there that you want to tell us about? Is there any 
books or anything? Uh, yeah, there are, there are a couple of books I've been involved with. Uh, one uh -huh. is one's by written by Frederick Forsyth. The uh -huh. title is The Fist of God. It's a fiction book, but it's about the Iraqi war. Mm -hmm. And the lead character is Don Walker, who is roughly based on my life. <laughs> I love it. Uh, the, he, he went to Oklahoma <laughs> State University and some of his military career looked like some of mine. Uh, but what the story, but the story is completely fictional. Right. It, doesn't, it doesn't resemble anything that actually happened in Iraq, but it is it is set in Iraq. I love uh, it. I'll have a picture on the uh, Instagram and all that stuff. So it, it was neat. The uh, my squadron commander during the war ended up beating Frederick Forsyth in uh -huh. uh, England. And Frederick Forsyth even signed a book for me. So that was kind of neat to that's get cool. a book signed by the author. I love it. The other one that's still out there, and you might have to search to find it, is a called Strike Eagle Flying the F-15E in the Gulf War by Bill Smallwood, William L. Smallwood. Uh, and it, uh, he and I did about 80 hours of phone interview, and he actually flew down to Las Vegas when I was working at the weapons school. And took me and my wife out to dinner uh, three or four different times and talked about our experiences during Desert Storm and uh, the, the time leading up to Desert Storm. And it's a great, great book. There's comments made by probably 90% of the people that were in the squadron. You know, we had 70 or 75 guys uh, flying the Strike Eagle at that time in that squadron. And so there's comments from almost every one of wow. them about what they experienced and what it was like to be over there. And uh, But Bill would write a chapter and then send it mm -hmm. to me for me to read through it. And then I, I had the X through opportunity <laughs> to go, well, that was written by so-and-so and he didn't really understand all that he thought he understood and, uh, because I did all the planning uh, and stuff. Some of the, some of what the guys thought was true. <laughs> it was probably true in their own mind, but it wasn't really true based on reality. So gotcha. uh, the book's a real good book, fairly quick read, uh, but, but a great opportunity. Uh, other than that, I've I've sketched out a book of my own mm -hmm. uh, based on a diary that I kept uh, while I was in Denver. He's got that diary here. It's pretty cool, folks. <laughs> it's pretty neat. <laughs> uh, uh, and eventually, I, I don't know that I, it's something that I would publish to the mm -hmm. public, but I'd sure like to get it written so that my kids and grandkids and, That's cool. and that family could have a better understanding of what that 10 or 11 months was like for me. Mm -hmm. uh, it's one of the... One of the one of the bad things about being an aviator in the military for a career, I wanted so desperately to be able to take my dad up and go fly him around and go, this is what I do for a living. Right. Because you you just, and, until you can strap yourself into a $60 million airplane and go 700 miles an hour at 100 feet off the ground and <laughs> pop up to 30,000 feet and then roll over and, and drop weapons on a target and fight your way in and fight your way out. You, you, it's, it's almost impossible to explain that to someone right. as important as your dad. Mm -hmm. And so that that aspect would have been nice if I, <laughs> if I could have ever gotten my dad and my brother and sisters and, and some of those to even come close to understanding what life was like as a fighter pilot in the Air Force. And I know it's different for Army guys and, oh, and yeah. Marines and, you know, good good gracious. If, if you could sit down with a Navy SEAL and have him tell you what his life was like, right. <laughs> it'd probably just blow you away. Yeah. Uh, and so I'm not saying my experiences are, are overly unique, but from a civilian perspective, they're entirely unique. Correct. And it, it's almost like speaking... Alien. When <laughs> that was the hardest thing when I got out of the that, army. Explain that to people that have never been there. <laughs> got out of the army and I had a hard time. I was, I didn't take vacation for two years, my last two years out of four. And I was in Central America. I loved it. And everybody thought I was going to be a lifer. And I was also playing rugby then back then. Oh, yeah. So I went to military nationals. I played as a star hook and um, got second place two years in a row, blah, blah, blah. So that's the only time I came back to the States. So I had like two months vacation saved up when I ETS. Oh, yeah. So they gave it to me. And I ended up working at TGIFs and all that type of stuff. And the next thing you know, I was like, what does it matter with these people? Like they're complaining about like the, <laughs> like the 
the silliest things. Oh, I was yeah. just like, and it, it's just, you know, not that I'm better or we're better. It was just their experiences were different. Yeah. We have been in certain things and combat and living in jungles and all that stuff. And then you come home and like, you know, my friends are so mad that the latest uh, TV show didn't get released on time or something. But like, yeah. What, yeah. what are yeah. we even talking about? Right? I just was like, okay, I'm just going to keep working all the time and just keep my head down. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. but yeah, that transition period, uh, you know, can, and so you're your notebook would be i think the notes you have sounds like it'd be a great thing if you can get that you know transcribed maybe you can get a famous person out there somebody listening to to read through some of it you oh can, yeah maybe get a liam yeah. neeson or something out there. yeah <laughs> Tom Clancy himself, yeah. right? Yeah, to read there you it. Go. So that'd be funny. Yeah. But um, but yeah, I just want to wrap up the interview here, Mark. And I just want to ask you, do you have somebody you want to give a shout out to in the podcast, your wife, family? Oh, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, the one thing I've tried to explain to people over and over, the life in the military for the military employee is sometimes tough, but completely doable. The life for your wife or your spouse, they all deserve crowns. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, if you talk about it in the perspective of of the crown that you'll, a righteousness you'll get when you go to heaven, my wife's is going to be 10 times the size of mine just from having to put up with what I put up with. She's going to have a robe and a crown. (laughs) And so, you know, what what I've actually thought about with this period of time where we've been dealing with cancer with her. Was, you know, how could I not support her through every possible thing that could come up? Amen. She's given 40 years of her life to my aviation career. Mm-hmm. We've been fighting cancer with her for six or eight months. Mm-hmm. It's it's a snap in the night. It's mm-hmm. just a wisp. Right. You know, and so how, how could I possibly complain <laughs> about anything to do with, with however long we have to fight this battle? Mm-hmm. Uh, and the good news is that we haven't talked about this on here, but the good news is she's winning the battle right Amen. now. And so, you know, we give all the glory to God for that. It's, it's the power of thousands of prayers. Mm-hmm. We have thousands of people from New Hampshire to Southern California praying for her daily. Uh, all of my old military buddies all over the world know about this. Mm-hmm. We we had some kids here in First Church that went out and, and set up a new church in New Hampshire. And, and I mean, there's hundreds of people going to their church that are praying for my wife and uh, my daughter-in-law's family has got all kinds of family through Southern California and mm-hmm. all of her, her doctor friends and my son's real estate friends. They're all lifting up prayers for my wife and it and it pays. It yeah. pays off. I mean, mm-hmm. she and I have felt comfortable through all of this. We know that God has a plan and God's telling a story. And we're just the ones that get to share that story when we get the opportunity. So, I learned something years ago at ORU. One of my professors would say at the end of class, go out and be living epistles. Yeah. I was like, yeah. okay. <laughs> Don't put, I was like, but that's kind of the truth. You know, yeah. the joy is in the journey. Yeah. Not the destination. So you're experiencing this. She's been with you on a journey. Oh, yeah. And you're with her oh, yeah. on this journey. Yeah. So our heart and but our prayers know, also will be lifted up for her, too. Yeah. But, you know, for, for her and my kids, I mean, my kids had a great life. And, you know, I, I, I don't think it was good on my three-year-old son when I left for 10 or 11 months. Uh, you know, just it just changes some things. And, you know, I, I knew something was different when I got home and he wouldn't even let me hold him. Uh, which just rips the heart out of the fighter pilot that's supposed to be the tough guy. <laughs> and now I've got a three-year-old that won't even let me pick him up for a few days. Uh, so, I mean, they, but, but they've lived a great life. I mean, we've gotten to move to various places and our oldest one was around when we went to Germany. So he got to spend three years in Germany and, wow. you know, that doesn't happen to very many people. And I look back at some of my high school friends here that were great friends but they've lived in Tulsa, Oklahoma since they were, you know, six-year-olds. Uh, and so at times, you know, when you have the opportunity to get together with them, you just kind of go, I don't think they under- even understand what we've done, you know. And, and they're still great people and, and great, you know, have done some great stuff on their own. But it's just a different mentality mm-hmm. when you pick up and go, I'm going to pick my family up and yeah. be gone for 25 years. Right. And it was so nice. We moved back here in 2005. So we've been here 
15, 16 years again and moving back into the same general area where we grew up. Mm -hmm. And at the time, her mom and dad were still alive uh, and my mom and dad are still alive. And so we've enjoyed 15 years being back around my my parents and one of my sisters. My other one lives out in uh, Amarillo. My brother passed away eight years ago from a massive heart attack, but uh, you know he, that 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 comes with the territory as well. Uh, but but we've gotten to spend time with his kids and his wife. Yeah. You know, it, it's a great opportunity and a great deal. And it's, I, I think you appreciate it more when you pack your bags and go, "Hey, we're going to be gone for the next 20, 25 years." <laughs> Puts and a different when, spin on it. A little and when different. you come back yeah. and go, "Wow, <laughs> this this is a real treasure." To mm-hmm. be able to spend time with some of the people that we get spent spend time with, and it's, I'd say the same thing for our church family. You know, yeah. if if you're out there and you know you don't have a church family, then I highly recommend you get one. My my life group, one of my life group members, is the one that introduced <laughs> me to you and you to me. <laughs> yep. and, uh, Great guy, just based on experiences. And you know, he, he and I and three or four other people in my group come up here and work at the church almost one day a week, mm-hmm. uh, at, at least when I can. Uh, but, you know, our, our executive minister here, if he needs a wall painted or something, he calls us and goes, hey, when can you all get to it? And <laughs> generally within a couple of weeks, we've got it done, you know. So it's just a great opportunity to build some of that camaraderie we had in the military out of the military and, and have those kind of relationships where you go, I know if I needed to, I could call Dan today and go, I need you at my house in 45 minutes. And, he, and he'd be there. Yeah. Well, that's that's an amazing thing to be in this community here. I love the Tulsa area. And now that we're back in it, we were in BA for years. And now we're in Owasso. So Owasso yeah. is our little niche now. And we love it. So I thank all these supporting people out there that have helped out already with the HAP project and everything you've been a part of. So anybody yeah. out there listening, which uh, if you've met Mark and been around him, <laughs> and if you've met myself, been around me, you know, like, we're the type of guys as veterans, like we wear our hearts on our sleeve and we work hard, right? And and we're yeah. men of faith and we try our hardest to do the right thing every time we can. And so, yeah. you know, I, I just want to say thank you to everybody out there that's uh, helped out and I appreciate it. So Mark, uh, anything you. else before we uh, wrap up here? I appreciate it. I, I, I love the opportunity to talk about what, what I've done in my military great. career. And uh, I think there's stories that people enjoy hearing. So it is. It's, it's, it's great. Good stuff. Hey, we'll have to have you come back on. You'd be the first guest to have another episode. Nobody's been on for two. So. Oh, there you go. There you go. <laughs> so those of you listening, we'll have to see if we can get Mark for number, for number two. Just I, put in some requests out there after you hear this podcast. I, I have plenty more stories. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right, everybody. I just want to thank you so much for listening. And I look forward to meeting everybody out and about. So uh, have a good day. And Mark, would you like to say goodbye to everybody? We'll see you around, folks. All right. Goodbye. Bye-bye. <laughs> the HAB Project, helping assist veterans every day, was founded with the intentions of helping local veterans through donations. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode. Find us on Facebook please check out our new website at www.thehaveproject.com. Any questions, concerns, or comments can be emailed to haveveteranproject at gmail.com.